You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Welcome. It's so good to be here this morning, isn't it? I, I hope you felt warmly welcome, particularly if you're new. I hope you got a warm handshake, a warm cup of coffee. Please stick around after church as we're going to have a pretty, like, tricked out morning tea. I think we've got sushi and all that good stuff happening as well. So stick around for that and for the fellowship. It's really great to be here. You know, Harborside Church, this is, a, this is an exciting morning for us. Every morning's exciting because we are pretty much brand new. We're only about five weeks old. Four weeks ago or five weeks ago, we launched this church. Uh, this church a couple of years ago was going to be sold off for apartments. And so many of you know the story, but God had a plan it set, set a, a dream in our hearts to plant a church in this area. And God had this incredible plan of restarting this church for his glory. It's been an amazing adventure and uh, it's been fun. So if you see anyone with, with a lanyard, you can ask them the story or you can come and chat to me. But it's, it's been an incredible journey to see what God has been doing. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever done this embarrassing thing? I bet you you have. We've all done it. Where you, you've mistaken somebody... You, who you thought you knew for somebody else. You ever done that? You ever walked down the street and sort of thought, oh, see, oh sorry, wrong person. You ever done that? Uh, I, I, it could have been a friend or a family member or a spouse, or at least that was your excuse, and you did that, and you thought, oh, sorry, it's not, not who I thought it was. Uh, pretty recently, only a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was walking across the pedestrian crossing right near my place, and as I was working, a car stopped, and I could have sworn it was my main man, Pete Jonas. He's up there on the sound desk all the time. There he is. I could have sworn it was his car, like I, could, I thought it was, and I couldn't really make out, you know, I could make out that it was a, a guy, but the son was sort of um, on the windshield, and so I did this really familiar, hey, how you doing, you know, as I was walking past, hey, shooter, that kind of thing, and as I kept walking, the son moved, and it revealed it was not Pete Jonas, but another guy, and he looked at me like I was pretty much deranged. What do you do in that instance? I just walked, I just, I just laughed to myself and kept walking. What do you do? Another time, probably about 10 years ago, I was at a friend's house. We were hanging out in their very small apartment. I wanted to watch the footy with the bloke in the relationship. And so Pip and the, and the girl, they, they went and had dinner down in Manly. We're in their tiny little studio apartment watching the footy, sitting on their two-seater couch. And watching the footy, we're about halfway through the game. And, you know, we're relaxing and hanging out. And he sort of just goes mm, like this and puts his arms around the couch and, you know, sort of his arm around me. And I'm thinking, okay, cool, that's cool, that's familiar. All right, I'm down with this. I can be cool with this. And then we're watching for a little bit more and then he just, like, starts tickling my back. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm, I mean, I'm a pretty cool kind of guy, but this is weird. And then he does it for a little while and then turns to me and goes, oh, I'm so sorry. He was just so used to doing that with his wife sitting next to me. I don't think I look like his wife. I don't think so. But he was so embarrassed. I still go up and we, we just still joke about the back tickling incident. It's still very funny. Cases of mistaken identity. Lots of them, aren't there? Hey, check out this photo. This is a picture of Ralph Alsman or Alsman. I'll say his last name however I want because I'd be surprised if any of you have heard of him before. Uh, his claim to fame is an unfortunate one for him. He looked almost exactly the same as America's most wanted man in the 1930s, who was John Dillinger. That's John Dillinger there. He robbed over two dozen banks, made famous by Johnny Depp in the film Public Enemies. Uh, he was not only, get this, not only did they look alike, here's a photo of Ralph Olsman holding a photo 
of John Dillinger in the photo. That's how much they looked alike. And get this, this is crazy. Both of them had a mole, a little mole, next to one of their eyes, and both of them had a scar on their left wrist. Isn't that crazy? Now, Paul Ralph, he lived not very far from Dillinger's hometown and where he was robbing a lot of banks. And so he got arrested 17 times by the authorities, thinking he was John Dillinger, the poor guy. Now, they always released him, but every time he had to undergo this awful interrogation to try and prove who he was. One time when he was arrested, they shot him 11 times. The poor guy, he survived, and I don't blame him. He was paranoid for the, for the next few years that law enforcement would kill him think before he could prove his true identity. Now, this finished when John Dillinger was shot and killed by federal agents in 1934. But poor Ralph Olsman, what a terrible case of mistaken identity. Imagine that. Awful. Well, today we're going to see two groups of people get the identity of Jesus wrong, mistaken, totally way off. Two groups of people, you'd think out of anybody, they'd have the best chance at figuring out who Jesus was. They are his family and the religious leaders. you think they'd probably have a good crack at knowing who Jesus was. The family, they think he's lost it. They think he's insane. The religious leaders, they think he's the devil himself, or pretty much. So two groups of people answering this question, who is Jesus? And they get it so wrong. That's one of the big questions as... as um, Dinesh said we've been traveling in our series called Discover Jesus. We're opening up Mark in the New Testament and we're discovering what the Bible has to say about what Time magazine would say is the most influential person of all time, Jesus. We're opening up God's word and we're looking at these questions. Who is Jesus and why did he come? Now, for some of us, we may not be that interested with the answers to those questions, but let me say this. I reckon we've all got questions about life, big or small, We've all got questions like, oh, we'll just blank that out for a second. Thanks, Maxie. We've all got questions like, where do we come from? Why am I here? What's the purpose in life? What am I going to actually do with my life? Where am I going? Those questions are incredibly important. But we would say, answering the questions, who is Jesus and why he came, shed a lot of light on those questions we talked about just then. So this morning, two groups of people seeking to answer this question, who is Jesus? They get it wrong. And as Jesus replies to them, as he answers their assessment of who he is, we get more insight into why he came. Namely, he came to destroy one kingdom and build another. So let's dive into our teaching text today, which was read so well by Gay. We're looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Jesus arrives at a house, we're told. Most probably Simon Peter's house in the little town of Capernaum, not far from Jesus' hometown. And what happens? We're told the crowds are gathering to him. It's getting almost out of control. We've seen in past weeks the crowds are attracted to Jesus. Why? Because of his healing ministry, because of his compassion, because he showed incredible compassion to the needy and the vulnerable, but also because he taught well. He taught as one who had authority. He took the word of God and applied it to people's hearts and daily lives, and that attracts people. We're told that this room is absolutely rammed, so crowded that they can't even eat. Can you imagine being in a house like that where you, you can't even eat? There's people literally right in your face. These, these crowds are almost getting in the way of ministry. Crazy. Jesus popular with the crowds. Then we're told 
Jesus' family hear about what's going on. They're most likely back in Jesus' hometown in Nazareth, not far from Capernaum, and they hear about what's going on. Words travel back to them about Jesus healing, cussing out demons, and his teaching. And what are they thinking? They're thinking, our Jesus? Okay, this has gone far enough. This te- the teaching thing we could handle, but, I mean, people are saying you could be this kind of and the religious authorities, they're not too impressed. Shouldn't be, we be sort of obeying what they say, Jesus? I think this has gone far enough. And we're told that they go to take charge of him. Now, this idea is that they want to go and impose their own agenda for Jesus' life upon him. They want to, uh, to deprive him of his freedom, to direct his course. It happens all the time for us when we come down the lift out of our apartment. We've got three kids. They all sort of go their separate ways. And my wife and I try to run after them and grab them by the hand because we want to direct them in the right direction. I mean, that's what Jesus' family are trying to do to him, trying to direct him. Jesus, come on. We should go this way. The way you're going, we should go this way. Now, let's just put ourselves in Jesus' position for a second. How, how do you reckon that would have made him feel? It would have been kind of hurtful. The people closest to you, your family, thinking you're out of your mind? If you think about it, have your own family think, oh, no, no, what you're doing is not right. I reckon about you, I reckon it's hard not to sympathize with Jesus' family, though. You know, words getting around Jesus, some kind of miracle worker, healer. He could even be this sort of long-awaited king or messiah, we're not sure. And they're thinking, really, our Jesus? You mean my son, my brother? No. He's getting carried away. Let's go help him remember who he really is. Now, it's not that we get any indication that Jesus is unworthy because of his upbringing or because of his character or anything like that, far from it. But, I mean, remember, Mary knew he was special, right? She received a visit from an angel. She gave birth to him as a virgin. There's a clue. But I don't think we should expect too much. 30 years has passed since then, and I don't think we, we, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight. Just put yourselves in the shoes of Jesus' family. I don't think we can expect too much of them. They can't have known everything. So Jesus' family, they're confused. This question, who is Jesus? They're struggling with it. And they think he's kind of out of his mind. Now, what's happening in our passage today is we've got two stories. And they're sort of, one of them, this one about Jesus' family, is cut in half. And in the middle, we've got another story. And then we revisit the story with Jesus' family at the end. So we've got A, one story, B, another, and then A, two. It resolves at the end. Mark loves doing this, the guy who wrote this. It's called a Markan sandwich. There you go. You've got a bit of a theological term this morning for you. Why does Mark do this? He brings two stories together to make one central point. That's why he does it. And it's this. Both groups would seek to label him with an incorrect identity, Both would seek to bind him with their own definition of who he is, but he won't be bound. He'll do the binding. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Okay, so the story with the family, we'll put that on pause. Now we've got a bit of a story with the religious leaders and who they say Jesus is. The teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, they come from Jerusalem, sort of the center of power, the city, and they go down to check out who Jesus is. Jesus is purporting to be some sort of religious leader, healer, teacher, but he hasn't been to any of their universities. He hasn't been to any of their colleges. He is not um, rubber stamped. And so the religious authorities are coming down and think, okay, well, who is this young upstart? You can imagine they're threatened by the presence of this influential teacher and healer. 
they offer their assessment of who Jesus is and it ain't pretty. What do they say? Oh, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. That's, that's, that's their two cents. That's, that's how you say, this is who we think Jesus is. He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Now, this is really interesting. They've most likely witnessed themselves or, or secondhand, or most likely some of them have witnessed some of Jesus' supernatural powers. And you know what they're not doing? They're not denying them. You notice that? Right? They're not denying them. In fact, they're trying to explain how they're happening, and they come to a very incorrect conclusion. They're saying, okay, how is these supernatural things happening? You're in cahoots with the devil. You're possessed by, or you yourself are the prince of demons. This is this uh, Beelzebub. It's a slangish term for some sort of senior type devil, we think, some senior demon working with the devil. Now, these religious leaders, they've seen Jesus do miraculous things. And notice this. They've seen the miraculous, but it doesn't inspire faith. You notice that? It inspires the opposite. I wonder if you've ever heard people say, or maybe you've said it yourself, or maybe you've thought it, and I think, fair enough, if only I could see a miracle, if only I could experience the supernatural, then I would believe. Then I would believe. But these religious leaders, they saw it. It didn't inspire faith. It inspired the opposite. Miracles do not necessarily inspire faith. Now, here at Harborside, do we believe in the miraculous? Absolutely. Do we long for miracles? Yes. Do we long for healing? Do we long for God to move in power in a mighty way? Absolutely. But we will not demand that of him. He will be who he will be. And he will move if he wants to move. We desire that. We long to see the miraculous. But I tell you what, it doesn't necessarily inspire faith. God has given us enough evidence of who Jesus is and what he's done in his word. That is enough for faith. Their assessment, the religious leaders, their assessment of Jesus is quite serious. And he kind of takes them to task a little bit here, certainly does in future chapters. And let me just say this, Jesus doesn't get cranky with the religious leaders for doubting who he is. Doesn't do that. Doesn't get cranky with them for asking questions? Absolutely not. He doesn't get cranky with them even for just not understanding who he is. No. He gets upset with them for ascribing the work of God to the work of the evil one, a very serious thing. And that's what Jesus is getting at. I don't want to dwell on this too much, but when he talks about sinning against the Holy Spirit, what he means by that is, if you continue in this path, if you continue to say that work of God is actually the work of Satan, you'll be unable to receive my offer of forgiveness. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is talking about later on. Now, Jesus doesn't get emotional. He calmly answers the religious leader's assessment. He says, not only are you wrong, but your logic is totally flawed. Let me explain. This is what Jesus says. He says, if I was really working with Satan, okay, you say I'm, I'm possessed by a demon. All right, if that were true, stay with me here, religious leaders. If that were true, wouldn't I be promoting what he's on about rather than working against it? How can we be working together when I'm systematically dismantling his kingdom piece by piece? It doesn't make sense for if that were the case, Satan would be orchestrating his own downfall and who would intentionally do that? See, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. We know that 
from studying history, civil wars break kingdoms, nations, and empires. Alexander the Great founded one of the, the largest kingdoms to that date, spread m- across much of the known world. He died very early, and his generals at his deathbed fought over who would take over the empire, and they broke it up, and they tried to administer it, and they fought amongst themselves, and pretty quickly it fell apart. The Romans marched in not much later. The U.S. Civil War almost broke the nation of the United States of America. And look at Syria, a shell of a nation of what it used to be. Civil War has broken that nation. A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Same with a relationship. When two people are turned into each other and fighting, that relationship, and there's so much tension, it will not last long. Its days are numbered. Jesus says, I can't be working with Satan, guys. Come on, your logic is flawed and you're wrong. That's not why I came, but I'll tell you why I came. Verse 27. Thanks. Uh, Is it verse 27 there? Yeah, in fact. Thanks, man. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? He's saying this. He's giving us a tip if we want to rob someone's house. He's saying, if you want to rob a strong man's house, the only way that you can do that is if you can overpower that strong man. If you can bind him, overpower him, then you are able to plunder everything in his home only if you can overpower that strong man. Now, in this little parable, the strong man is Satan, okay? And Jesus is saying, the only way that I can do what I'm doing in his earthly ministry at that point, which is casting out demons, knocking down the kingdom of darkness, bringing in the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, the only way I can do that is if I am stronger than the evil one. Then I can bind him and go about what I'm doing. That is the only way. That is why I came. Now, you might be thinking, what does it mean for Jesus to take apart Satan's kingdom? What does it actually mean? I mean, think about this. How do we explain this? Well, I think a bigger question is, well, who is Satan and what's his deal? Let's make sense of that first. We're told from God's word that Satan fell out of heaven, was an angel, was cast out of heaven for disobeying God's authority, and he is condemned forever for rebelling against God's authority. Jesus now, through his earthly ministry, has set about destroying the devil's work, and he delivers a fatal blow to death and the devil's work by defeating death by death on a cross. When Jesus comes back again in glory, 2,000 years ago, he came in humility and suffering. He will come again in glory, and when he does, he will cast the devil and demons into destruction forevermore. Now, here's something, we're going to pause in a moment, but here's something for us to really note now. Ready? Satan is real, but he is bound. We must not ignore him, but we also must not fear him. That sort of mantra of be alert but not alarmed is true in this instance. His presence in the world is real, but his power is limited. Now, I want to pause for a second and, and just speak to the room a bit. Some of us, we might be struggling just to believe some of this stuff. There's a lot of talk about angels and, and the devil and demons. I mean, do we really believe in that stuff? I mean, do we really believe in things that we can't see that are very difficult to, 
impossible to prove, evidence for maybe, but prove. Do we really believe in this stuff? I mean, we're people of reason, right? We're children of the Enlightenment. We're modern people. Do we really believe this stuff? Man, they are good questions, really good questions. I think, let me answer with a question, as Jesus often does, answers with a question. Let me answer with a question. How do we explain the presence of evil in the world? How do we do it? Every faith system has to come up with a, an answer to that question. Even secular, agnostics, atheists have to make sense of our world, don't we? We've got to try and make sense of the world we live in. Okay, how do we explain the presence of evil in our world? Unfortunately, it's not difficult to prove. I could fill the screen behind me with images from this morning's paper, couldn't I, of wars, disease, violence, human trafficking. I mean, with sadness to the core, I'm not going to do it, but you name it, I could put it up there. It's not hard to prove. Where does it come from? This is what I love about God's Word. Right? This is what I love about the Bible. When we read it, it has the ring of truth to it. When we read it, it explains our world as it is. We read it and go, we go oh, right. It explains our world as it is and ex explains us, who we are in our situation that we find ourselves in. See, the Bible, when explaining the presence of evil, would say it all comes down to rebellion, rejection, sin. You see, God created us to love and serve him and love others. And by living this way, we would have been completely happy and enjoyed a perfect world. But every single one of us, including me, rebelled against God's authority, not wanting his authority over our lives. No thanks. It's an unwanted shackle. I'll live my own life. Thank you very much. And this is symbolized so perfectly in the Garden of Eden when our first parents believed the lie of Satan. What happened? They had everything. God had provided everything for them. They could have had everything. Just don't eat from this one tree. And Satan whispered in their ear, why? God, okay, he may have provided lots for you, but that one tree, he's holding out on you. He is a joy killer. He's a killjoy. You can't trust him. You cannot trust God. And every single one of us has been plagued with that lie ever since. All of us. Here's why. Because even though we don't trust God and we don't, many of us don't put him in his rightful place, we put something there. We have to. God said he has put eternity in our hearts. We long for something meaningful, for something transcendent, something bigger than ourselves to be on that throne of our hearts, if you will. Long for something to be there. And if it's not God, we'll put something there. We, it's, it's, we have to. We will ascribe worth to something. We are restless. And so we put something there. One of the great church fathers, Augustine, said it right when he said this, You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. There's truth to that, isn't there? See, some of us will fill that, that void if it's not God, if we don't put God there in his rightful place in our hearts. We'll put something there. We will. And something maybe very toxic, like drugs, alcohol, addiction to violence, those kind of things, and they have enormous power. Be powerful addictions, and we can feel chained to them. In fact, the reality is many, we, we are chained to those things, let me say it clearly, Jesus came to break the power of those things in our lives. 
at the Alpha course this week. Uh, it was great. We you know, sat around having a meal and, and we watched a, uh, a wonderful presentation. We had a discussion. The presentation was on why did Jesus die. It's this awesome film uh, interviewing different people, the testimonies. And we heard the testimony of this uh, man who was in prison. He was in prison for two attempted murders. He tried to stab people. An incredibly violent man. He had an awful upbringing. Very violent man. And in prison... Um, he wanted to do anything to get out of his cell and he signed up for this course and he went down and he, said, he went down and he realised it was a Christian thing. He said, oh, not a Christian thing. But there were free biscuits, so he went. Um, that's why you're here for the free coffee. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and he experienced, he met the living God on this course. This man is utterly transformed by the power of God's grace. God met him there and changed him. This man was violent just uncouth. I mean, goodness me. And now he's having Bible studies with his children. This man is utterly transformed. I wanted to play uh, that video actually this morning. And I thought, that'd be cool. I didn't. Because if you're anything like me, you might think that's really great, but that's pretty removed from where I am right now. I mean, that's nice for someone who has a terribly destructive addiction. And okay, God can transform that. He needs that. But that's not me. I'm not, that's not really me. Or if it is you, maybe you hide it very well. We, we live in a part of Australia, part of Sydney, uh, that is very affluent, that we, we put our masks up and we want to hide a lot of stuff that's going on. And you, you might think, that's not like me. But here's the thing. Every single one of us makes something, if not God, the ultimate thing in our lives. And that can cause massive instability. In fact, we give that so much power. And the problem is, the thing that we put there is not designed to carry that divine weight. Only God was. And so we will crush it with our expectation. It becomes very toxic in our lives. We could say that the word worship comes just from the idea of worthship, ascribing worth to something. If it's not God, we put something in there that we worship, that we ascribe worth, ultimate worth to. The American author, David Foster Wallace, not a Christian guy, uh, was struggling with this concept himself and was invited to speak at a graduation. And he said these words. And after this, terribly sadly, he took his own life. But these are almost some of his final words to a graduating class. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. Let me read it. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, I love that line, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and sexual allure. Where am I? And you will always feel ugly. And when, the time, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they are default settings. These things that we ascribe worth to have real power in our lives, and we would say the evil one is behind the delusion that those things can deliver on the promises they were never intended to keep, never intended to fulfill. Jesus came to break the power of these things in our lives. 
You see, yes, sin is doing bad things and swearing and stealing. Yeah, sure, okay, that's sin. But sin ultimately is taking something and making it God. And when we do that, we give it an extraordinary amount of power. And we cannot, on our own, free ourselves from our dependence on it. Yeah, we can move from thing to thing, but that's just changing the problem. That's renaming the problem. That's not dealing with the root of our issue. We need Jesus to free us because Jesus is the stronger man. All right, let's keep moving. Now we're going to revisit the story of Jesus' family. After Jesus finished experience, sorry, explaining his mission to destroy the evil one, his family sent a message to him. Now remember where we are? We're in a room packed with people so crowded they can't even eat. And the, the family send Jesus a message. Most likely a messenger sort of comes up to Jesus and whispers loudly, or, you know, your family's waiting outside for you. I'm sure everybody overheard. And this is a pretty significant moment for Jesus. Everyone's looking, what is he going to do? Family ties back then, incredibly strong. For us modern people living in the 21st century, Western culture, very individualistic, family ties are not so strong. But back then, my goodness, and in some areas of the world now, very strong. What is Jesus going to do? He would have been fully expected to get up, go outside and do what his family wanted. But he doesn't. What does he do? He says, my family? My family. And he looks at the people around him, becoming devoted to him, and he said, these are my family. People who do the will of God, they are my family. An incredibly scandalous thing for Jesus to say. But what does he mean by that? He means this. Almost done here. Stay with me. Two groups come and mistaken Jesus for something else. A loony, the, the devil, working with the devil, they try to bind him with their own version of who he is. Jesus won't be bound. Instead, he will do the binding. He will bind the evil one. And in doing so, he will demolish a despicable kingdom, a kingdom of darkness that would see people enslaved to things like pornography, violence, drug addiction, alcoholism, money, sex power, you name it. He will destroy a kingdom like that and build a new one, a new kingdom. You could call it a new family which he will lead and give life and life to the full to its members. Jesus is saying this new family even supersedes your blood family. Now, Jesus is not even close to saying you should not love and serve your blood tithe family. Christians should be among the forefront of loving and serving our families. As hard as that can be sometimes, we have a commitment to loving our family. But Jesus is trying to make a point, isn't he? He's saying this new family is special. And wasn't it special this morning to welcome in Banjo to our community? Wasn't that great and pray for Ali and Sean? And because this church here, we're more than just a bunch of strangers. We're more than just a bunch of acquaintances. We're more than just a bunch of friends. We are family. That's what Jesus is trying to paint the picture of here this morning. All right. Let me wrap this up with a story, hey? Let me try to illustrate this with a story that Pip and I heard this week. Uh, we're quite, we had, had the fortune of catching up with some friends of mine. I went to Bible college with Quentin and Ashley, and they're a lovely couple. We, we got to spend some time with them. They're out here from the Middle East. They are currently serving the Lord in Jordan as missionaries. 
And God put an incredible burden on their heart for the people of Yemen, a small Middle Eastern country down the bottom of the Middle East. Now, they unfortunately aren't able to go to Yemen at the moment because of the civil war there. They told us the greatest humanitarian crisis in the world is currently there in the country of Yemen. So they can't go there to love and serve and share the gospel with those people. So they're currently in Jordan. And they've been there for two years seeking to serve the refugees from Yemen as they come through. They're amazing people. We've got to spend some time with them. This week we support them and we love them. And uh, we receive their updates. And They told us about Ben. I'll tell you about Ben for a minute. Here's a picture. That's Ben on the left. That's Quentin, our, our friend on the right. And that's beautiful little Amari and Alana in the center. I'll talk to the pictures in a moment. Our friends met Ben. Ben grew up in Yemen and has fled there, like many of his countrymen, fled from there due to the war. His mother died when he was really young. He has a very, very sad story. His mother died when he was very young and his father remarried and his stepmother hated him, told lies to his father and they kicked him out at a very young age. He bounced around from family to family and all he really knew was pain and rejection was, and was terribly abused as a young person. Very sad, early life. For years, all he knew was pain and rejection. Now, our friends, particularly Quentin, met him in their apartment block. Ben was living there with a bunch of other refugees, you know, just crammed into this tiny apartment, trying to scrounge out a living. Quentin had only been there for nine months, and his Arabic was sort of, it's great now, but it was just solely coming together, a very difficult language to learn. And he started striking up conversations with Ben in the corridors, in the stairwells, just very broken English, Arabic. And, and he started to extend the love and grace of Jesus to Ben. He invited him over, him over to their home. They cooked for him and they, they talked into the night just about things. And Ben was pretty blown away with these two Aussies. Eventually he asked them, what are you guys doing here? After he saw the tangible love of Christ in these two. What are you guys doing in this country? And they were able to share the gospel with Ben, the good news with Ben. And let me tell you, Ben was blown away with Jesus you see that picture that he's holding there, that picture in calligraphy? Ashley's an incredible artist, and that in, it's Arabic, and in English it means Emmanuel, which means God with us. Ben was blown away with the concept that Jesus is God, and he came to earth to seek and to save the lost like me? You see, the God of Islam is utterly transcendent, un, almost unknowable, untouchable, the God of the Christian faith, Jesus, gave up dignity and in utter humility came to earth, became one of us. Why? To seek and to save people like Ben, to break the chains of, of worthlessness that he felt of insecurity and bring him the love of God. Ben received Christ. And this is a picture of his baptism or the, of the day of his baptism. That's actually there on the far right. Isn't that beautiful? He was baptized into the family of Jesus. He now considers uh, Quentin and Ashley family, and they hang out together a lot, and they pray together, and they, they have Bible studies together, and they talk about reaching other people from Yemen. Ben's life is utterly transformed. He sees his main mission in life to share the good news of Jesus to other people from Yemen. And, and this is the part that really got us. We were tearing up at the table when they told us this next part. Quentin's parents are beautiful Christians from Australia, and they were coming to visit in sort of a week's time or something. And Ben heard about this 
And a few days later, he came up to Quentin, very shy and reserved, and said, Quentin, would it be okay if I treated your parents while they were here as though they were my parents too? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what Jesus is all about? Jesus comes to break down the kingdom of darkness and bring a new kingdom, a new family about where this is true. He breaks the chains of loneliness, of sin that bind us and shapes us into something beautiful. He takes the broken and the ugly and he makes something beautiful. He frees us from the power of sin. He adopts us into his new family. We're going to stop now. We're going to sing in a moment. I'll invite the band. Come on up, guys. Thank you. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. And then at Harborside Church here, we want to be a church that offers prayer to people as a gift. Because I believe we are a gift to each other. And I believe praying for each other is a powerful thing in the name of Jesus. We'd love to offer prayer for anybody. For who? Well, for anyone. Let me ask the question, do you currently right now feel chains to something in your life? Maybe you're a Christian, you just feel there is something in the way of you connecting with God. Maybe it's a sin you just cannot break the power of in your life. Come on up and receive some prayer. Maybe you don't yet know the Lord and you feel like there is something just in your life that is just tearing you apart. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is the strong man and can break those chains. We'll invite you to receive prayer. Anybody that wants to be strengthened in their faith this morning, come on up and receive prayer. I'll be down here. What about your family, friend situation? Have you been rejected like Ben? Do you have a lot of pain in your life revolving around friends and family? And Do you long to be part of the new family Jesus is introducing? Come on down and receive some prayer. Have you chased after something you thought was everything and it ended up being nothing, delivered so little? Come on down. The truth is Jesus offers real life and will never disappoint. Let me pray now for us. Heavenly Father, we we come before you this morning just so grateful for all that you are. Jesus, you are the strong man. You have come to break the power of sin and evil in our lives. Lord, we may not want to admit it, but we have many things in our lives that seek to dominate us, and we ask that you would do your powerful work of saving us from these things. That's why you came. You came to liberate us, to set the captives free. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this family. We thank you again for little Banjo and Ali and Sean that were able today to formally welcome them into this church and to commit to pray for them to bring up Banjo in your ways. Just thank you for the celebration that we get to do here, the fact that we know you, we love you. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.